You're listening to the Religion and Fiction Podcast. A podcast for people interested in the intersection of the sacred and story that offers insight, inspiration, and a bit of entertainment for the journey. I'm your host, Jeremy Bauma, a former pastor and theologian who writes stories under J.A. Bauma and believes that nobody should have to read bad religious fiction. Today in week three of the Religion and Fiction Book Club, we are exploring chapters 8 through 11 of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And we dive deeper into the person of Aslan, as well as our own human story. Hey, Religious Fiction readers, Jeremy here with episode three of the Religion and Fiction podcast. Super excited you are here, especially diving along with me through C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in our third week of our book club. And today, these chapters bring us to the heart of the book, really, because it turns our attention to Aslan and all he means for Narnia and for the children, as well as what and who he means for us. Because, as you may have intuited, Aslan is really sort of a stand-in, imagined Christ figure for Narnia, but also for our world and us. No better do we find the embodiment of who Jesus means for us than in the story of Edmund and who Aslan means for him. He sort of embodies this epic struggle between good and evil that plays itself out on both the world stage and individual human stages. There is this power at work in him, as well as the the broader world of Narnia. And as Aslan starts moving through the world of Narnia that is under the power and influence of the White Witch, which is on full display with the wintry landscape of the world, the week ends on an incredibly hopeful note with the arrival of Father Christmas and the impending doom of winter, offering a foretaste of that glorious day when Jesus Christ himself returns to make all things new and put this broken, busted world back together again. Stick around for the book club. Here we go. All right, welcome to week three of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe Virtual Book Club. Really excited that you've joined this uh, exploration through C.S. Lewis's enchanting, inspiring book. And uh, we're coming now to really the heart of the book in chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. And uh, we are going to be turning our attention in this book club session to... Aslan and his arrival, who he is, what he means to Narnia, as well as the four kiddos. So let's get to it, shall we? So the question opening this session of week three in the Line the Witch in the Wardrobe virtual book club is the question that the, the four kiddos themselves ask in the beginning of chapter eight. Who is Aslan? 
who is this Aslan character that they have been hearing so much about? What does he mean for Narnia and for the uh, the transition from winter to Christmas or to summer and to the restoration and rescue of this enchanted world? Well, in page 78, we begin to hear a little bit about more who he is. And I just want to read that in answer to Susan's question, who is Aslan? Mr. Beaver says, why don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood, but not often here, you understand. Never in my time or my father's time, but the word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at this moment. He'll settle the white queen. All right. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. She won't turn him into stone too, said Edmund. Lord love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say, answered Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. Turn him into stone? If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most she can do and more than I expect her. No, no, he'll put all to rights as it says in an old rhyme in these parts. And listen to this. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. He goes on and uh, Mr. Beaver says, Aslan, a man, what are you? He's like, what are you talking about, right? Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and not the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. And I think that, man, this is such uh, a beautiful description of Aslan, but also of our own lion, right, that we've been exploring and kind of relating the person of Aslan or the, the being of Aslan to the person of Jesus. And I love that line, he'll put all to rights. And I can't help but think of an episode in the life of Jesus where this is brought to home in describing his own person. And Luke 4, we find a bit more about the person of Jesus Christ and who he was, but also what he came to do. Early in the life of his ministry, he uh, sort of walks into this temple gathering and he's handed a scroll, the book of Isaiah, and he is invited to read from it. So he unrolls it And this is what he reads. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So there it is. Very reminiscent of that rhyme that Mr. Beaver read or recited from uh, the the prophecy concerning Aslan and who he was and what he meant for Narnia, right? So there it is, Jesus himself in Luke 4 relating this prophetic utterance from the book of Isaiah to himself. When he finishes reading, he rolls it up, gives it back to the attendant, then he sits down and he says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so he applies this to his own self. Jesus is blessed by the Spirit to be a blessing to the world, right? To proclaim the good news of the kingdom of heaven, uh, to 
proclaim this news to all the clans of the earth, to everyone who is marginalized and dismissed, to heal the sight of the blind, both literally through acts of healing and figuratively through the eyes of the nations being enlightened and opened for salvation, to bring release to the captives and the oppressed, to send them forth in release. And of course, also through the forgiveness of sins, the release from the binding spiritual power of the evil one, release from deaths in a materialistic sense through the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. Sounds a lot like Aslan, doesn't it, right? He puts all to rights. And this is crucial about who Jesus is as well what he came to do, who he means for the world. And I want to touch on quickly uh, two aspects of our own Aslan, who Jesus is as both fully God and fully man. Because one of the, the things I find interesting about Aslan in this book is that there seems to be this both um very earthly aspect to him. Of course, he's a lion, but there's also this uh, sort of otherworldly aspect to him, right? Where he uh, has existed before the creation of Narnia uh, as this sort of uh, godlike figure. And in Lewis relating and connecting Aslan in some way to who Jesus is, we can only properly understand Jesus Christ's person by recognizing that he was both very human and very God. You see, Jesus Christ lived as a real human being and endured everything that life has to offer. Jesus is also really God, though he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage while he lived this life. Instead, he made himself nothing by taking on the nature of a servant. He was made as a human in order to live the life we could not live, die on the cross, the death we should have died, and then resurrect three days later, bringing forgiveness and salvation and rescue to all the world. And as I've said in some of my own fiction uh, through some of my characters, Jesus is not some sort of Gandhi on steroids, okay? He isn't a really nice guy who did and said really nice things. No, he is the son of of God, the firstborn over all creation, in whom and for whom and through whom all things were created. And I'll go one step further to say that Jesus is actually God himself, the only one true God who lived the life we could not live, die the death that we should have died in order to pave the way for our salvation. And this is crucial for the person of Jesus Christ in relating who he is and what he means for us. Because he paid our price in our place, opening the way for our salvation. And I think that the same can be said of Jesus as what was said of Aslan after Lucy asked whether Aslan the lion was safe. I love that line in uh, in the book... On page 80... Uh, Lucy asks, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. And here's a response from Mr. Beaver. Safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. 
He's the king, I tell you. In, in many ways, that sounds rather contradictory, I think, right? And first hearing to hear that he isn't safe, but he's good. Why would you want to meet an, uh, Aslan or the lion? Why would you want to meet this uh, being who isn't safe um, while also still being good? And so there's there's this like dissonance here between his uh, lack of safety, but also his pure goodness. And think about this connection between Aslan and Jesus in this sort of way. He isn't safe, but he is good. It's so easy to try and make Jesus safe, isn't it? To domesticate him and control him, to water him down and manipulate him and co-opt him to be the mouthpiece for our own agenda, whatever that might be, whether right or left or up and down. Our own line of Judah, as Jesus is known, isn't safe. He does not exist to serve us, to bend to our own definitions of reality, to bless and approve our agendas, right? No, no, he isn't. He isn't safe, but he is good. And there's this line uh, that I've used in uh, a couple places in my own writings and uh, the uh, in my Faith Reimagined series in the first book, as well as I think it was Templar's Rising in my Order of Thaddeus series. And uh, it, it sort of gets at this idea. It's from a, a book for the first one, A Reimagined Faith, that my main character, Peter Daniel Young, is reading. And the line is this. When Jesus came, he blew everything to pieces. And when I saw where the pieces landed, I knew I was free. You see, Jesus, when he comes into our lives, when we have an encounter with him, breaks it all down. He he dismantles us. He breaks us down. He sheds the false faces we create. He dismantles the false belief systems and ways of living that we cling to, calling us into a new way of living, a good way, a way that's truer than anything we could ever have dreamed of, a way that's free, a way that is good. So, is Jesus safe? Of course he isn't. But he is good. When we get down to it, we need Jesus to come into our lives and disrupt it because we're all like Edmund. We are, in the words of one theologian, both brilliant and bad. We're all good monsters, right? We see that play out in our own individual lives. We see it played out in the world around us. While I mentioned in the past couple of weeks, we're fundamentally statues of God. Uh, we are sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, God's crowning achievement, but we're also broken, busted statues. Deep down, we know what my own story illustrates, that we're all crooked, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as Paul says. Turn on social media, Facebook, Twitter. You get the full spectrum of this reality, right? Of of human nature. Both the good, the funny, the kind, the uplifting, and the not-so-good. The the evil, the spiteful, the wicked, the, the bad side of humanity. And it makes sense, because all of us are born rebels in desperate need of rescue, which we see played out very brilliantly, I think, in the story of Edmund, who is this sort of interesting combination of spitefulness, 
but you also feel for the guy because he's taken in by the white queen and uh, there is this good side to him that comes out at different points. Uh, but then most of it is very spiteful and he's obsessed with Turkish delight and wanting to climb over Peter to become king of Narnia. And this is true in our own lives. We, we see this interplay play out between good and evil and any good fantasy worth their weight of salt finds this dynamic at work, this interplay, this tale between good and evil. And we ourselves are put right in the middle of this epic struggle between good and evil in our own lives, in our own world. And we see this struggle sort of played out in the life of Edmund, don't we? Chapter 9 certainly extends this struggle particularly. And we find that the mention of Aslan gives Edmund a, a mysterious and horrible feeling just as it gave the others a mysterious and lovely feeling. And when I remember reading that, I wondered, why Why was that? Why was Edmund's reaction to the name of Aslan, this, this fear, this horror, why do you suppose that was? In my mind, it kind of conjured up the the reaction that Adam and Eve first had in the Garden of Eden. When they sinned, they recognized that they did what they were not supposed to do, disobeying God, eating from the tree to the knowledge of the good and evil. And God comes into the garden and they go hide, right? They feel shame, but they also realize that there's now this disconnect between themselves and God, that there's this gulf that has been breached. And he's coming in, they're fleeing, trying to hide, because they know that there's something very distinct now between themselves and God. And maybe that's part of what is happening in Edmund's own heart. You know, Aslan is understood to be this great and mighty lion who is good, who is coming to save Narnia, to rescue it and restore it, to put it to right. And Edmund has within himself this very contrary desire to this pull toward the White Queen and the winter that she brings and this magic that has reduced Narnia to this cold winter wasteland. Romans 8-7 comes to mind. Uh, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God, it says. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And then John 3.20, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. You know, and Edmund knows better than to trust the white witch. Uh, he knows deep down that she is wicked and evil and everything that he really should not want and doesn't want at the end of the day. And yet he's captivated by her, captivated by what the white witch offers him captivated by her magic, embodied in this Turkish delight. And he can't resist this lure to stuff himself with it, to uh, want more, to ask for more. You know, John 1, 2, 16, I think, speaks to this very principle. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. So sin and the magic of this worldly order uh, can be summarized in these three ways. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And we see all three played out in spades in the life of Edmund, right? In the world itself, in our own lives. And this heart 
uh, of Edmonds, our own heart, is wrapped up in this magic that the name of Aslan gives him this horrible feeling. It's this battle, this classic battle of good versus evil, right? Everyone is forced to choose sides, to take a stand. Edmund is forced to choose a side, the White Queen or Aslan. And there is this struggle in his heart. What is he going to choose? Jesus told his disciples the same thing, that they would face this great danger because of him, that there would be this choice that they would have to make, him or the world. We see this choice played out in the disciples themselves between Judas and Peter before Jesus' death. Both choose betrayal, but only one of those characters chooses repentance. Peter eventually turning from his wicked ways and returning back to Jesus, serving him, following only him. And this struggle, this desire, uh, this choice between Aslan and the the, the White Queen plays out in the life of Edmund as well. This choice between good and evil. And we'll see where things end up very shortly. But before we get to that, the story turns back to the others, the other three. Lucy, Peter, Susan, and their journey to the stone table. During this journey, something very unexpected happens. The spell begins to break. Page 106 to 107 in my book, at least, uh, in yours, it's probably the very middle of chapter 10. I love this. I love how Lewis describes the power of the White Queen breaking. Listen to this. Come on, cried Mr. Beaver, who was almost dancing with delight. Come and see. This is a nasty knock for the witch. It looks as if her power is already crumbling. What do you mean, Mr. Beaver? panted Peter, as they all scrambled up the steep bank of the valley together. Didn't I tell you, answered Mr. Beaver, that she'd made it always winter and never Christmas? Didn't I tell you? Well, just come and see. And then they were all at the top and did see. It was a sledge, and it was reindeer with bells on their harnesses, but they were far bigger than the witch's reindeer, and they were not white but brown. And on the sledge sat a person who everyone knew the moment they set eyes on him. He was a huge man in a bright red robe, bright as holly berries, with a hood that had fur inside and a great white beard that fell like a foamy waterfall over his chest. Everyone knew him because though you see people of his sort only in Narnia, you see pictures of them and hear them talked about everywhere in the world, even in our world, the world on this side of the wardrobe. But when you really see them in Narnia, it is rather different. Some of the pictures of Father Christmas in our world make him look only funny and jolly. But now that the children actually stood looking at him, they didn't find it quite like that. He was so big and so glad and so real that they all became quite still. They felt very glad, but also solemn. I've come at last, he said. She has kept me out for so for a long time, but I have got in at last. Aslan is on the move. The witch's magic is weakening. Love that. And I love how Father Christmas, Santa Claus, sort of embodies the power of the the witch's magic breaking, right? As they've been saying all along, always winter, never Christmas. And of course, Christmas symbolizes so much, doesn't it? 
we're a week away next week uh, as i record this now next week um actually yeah and two weeks away as i record this but when this goes live christmas will be next week I don't know about you, if you have kids or you you have other kids in your lives, if you don't have them yourself, but you know, during this time, kids are just off the walls waiting for Christmas to arrive. My own kids, uh, six-year-old, three-year-old, cannot wait. There is so much joy, so much hope, so much expectation wrapped up in that day, whether you're a Christian or not. I mean, there is this this magic to the day, this magic to the season, this expectation, this joy, this desire for all that it represents, the, the presence, but also just the, the fun times, the family times. And Lewis uses this day as sort of symbolic of all of that. Uh, in this story, what Narnia itself longs to get back to. And so it makes sense that the witch's magic sort of prevents him from showing up, prevents Father Christmas from showing up, right? But now he does. Showing her magic, the, the queen's magic is weakening because Aslan is on the move, opening up the way for joy and hope and expectation to return back to the world of Narnia once again and to return to our own world once again. If 2020, I think, has showed us anything, it's that there is this deep hope for all of that, isn't it? Joy, uh, hope, rescue, release from the decay, the, the, the bad stuff of this world, whether it's disease or death or unemployment or just the fear wrapped up in pandemic. And in the person of Jesus, we find that release. We find that rescue. Uh, eventually, he will put all of it to right where there will be no more pandemics. Thank the Lord for that. And Aslan in this story sort of represents the return to all of what we hope for, all of that joy, all of that expectation. And so Father Christmas, Santa Claus, shows up showing that the, the white witch's power is weakening and then he gives gifts for the road ahead on page 108. He says there are these presents he gives them, and they are tools, not toys. The time to use them is perhaps near at hand. Bear them well. And he gives Peter, Susan, Lucy these very special gifts that they're to use down the road. And I love how they're tools and not toys, <laughs> because they're to be used uh, to empower them to take their place in the fight against the white witch, this epic battle between good versus evil. And the same is true for us followers of Christ as well. Each of us have been given special gifts empowered by the Holy Spirit to accomplish Jesus's good work in the world, this fight against the dark magic that holds its sway over our own reality. Uh, the Bible in 1 Corinthians 12 speaks of the Spirit giving these gifts to each one just as he determines. Very similar to Father Christmas in this story here, giving these very specific particular gifts to Peter, Susan, and Lucy. We, we find this list in 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 8 of leadership and gifts of healing and gifts of prophecy and teaching and faith, uh, gifts of stewardship and administration, all of them given to followers of Jesus in this, to take their stand, to take their place in this epic battle of good versus evil. 
And similarly, we use these gifts not as tools, uh, not as toys, but as tools. We use these gifts that the Spirit gives us to wage war against the powers of darkness. Ephesians 6 reminds us that this struggle that we have in this world is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, against the authority, against against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so, similarly to Father Christmas giving these tools, not toys, to Peter, Edmund, or Peter, Lucy, and Susan, rather, We ourselves are to take up these tools, these gifts given to us in this struggle between good and evil. We're to put on the armor of God to take our place in this battle so that we can stand our ground. Ephesians 6 reminds us of what those tools are, right? The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, uh, which is the word of God. These are our tools in our battle of good versus evil. And this battle begins to come to a head in chapter 11 where the white witch is racing to the stone table. Uh, You can see this visible transformation of the world because of Aslan's own movement within Narnia, in this adjacent world of Narnia. The snow is melting, spring and summer are on the way, they're arriving, rivers are flowing again, flowers are sprouting. And we see this playing out in page 118, chapter 11. All around them, though out of sight, there were streams chattering, murmuring, bubbling, splashing, and even roaring. And his heart gave a great leap when he realized that the frost was over. And much nearer, there was a drip, drip, drip from the branches of all the trees. And then, as he looked at one tree, he saw a great load of snow slide off it. And for the first time since he had entered Narnia, he saw the dark green of a fir tree. But he hadn't time to listen or watch any longer, for the witch said, Don't sit staring, fool! Get out and help! Of course, this is Edmund experiencing the the arrival of Aslan in Narnia, the, the transition from winter to spring and summer. Such a vivid image of the world of good in the world, right? Replacing the cold, wintry evil. And... Obviously, this whole year, 2020, we've been living in our own world of winter, never Christmas, right? 2020 has sort of embodied this this principle of always winter, never Christmas with this virus that has been plaguing us, literally a plague, uh, preventing us from getting back to normal life, whether kids getting back to school, people getting back to work, uh, all of us getting out and just living life, enjoying concerts, movies, restaurants, dinner out with friends, sometimes even worship at our, at our churches. And, And now we have this hope of a cure though right this hope of a vaccine and and so there's this there's this winter that we've been living in but then we also have this glimmer this glimpse of spring with this hope of a a cure for the virus and we see this sort of interplay played out in more of a broader sense right too 
we see around us the suffocating poverty, racial injustice, child prostitution, disparities of income, massive confusion over gender and marriage, divorce, opioid addiction and death, massive rise in depression and anxiety and suicide. Uh, There's been this rise in the occult and worship of foreign faiths, but also of Satan himself. There has been reports of a rise of demonic possession and and just a whole variety of things that signal to us that we are living in this perpetual winter. We long for Christmas. We long for the spring of Christmas, the joy, the hope, the expectation. But this is the world we're in, uh, the world that is not at all the way it's supposed to be as we marked in that first week of our study together. But we have these glimmers of hope, the the rushing water, the patches of grass, the dark green fur of a tree, right? When we see all of this, this good news of rescue and recreation with Christ breaking in to somebody's life, we find these glimmers of hope when Christ shows up, when people are freed from addiction and anxiety, when a broken marriage is put back together again, we see this glimmer of spring and summer replacing winter, when racism is condemned and healed, when even the simple things of life, our fears, our anxieties, are replaced by a peace and a hope that surpasses all understanding. We we find this glimmer of spring breaking into the winter of life, right? And this is how chapter 11 ends this week how we will end this week. And I love this ending because this is what we all long for, I think. So the white witch and the the dwarf, her minion and Edmund are racing through the quickly melting Narnia and it's thawing all around them, right? And so the, the queen's dwarf said, this is no thaw, this is spring. What are we to do? Your winter has been destroyed. I tell you, this is Aslan's doing. This is the hope of our own world, isn't it? The hope of not only of 2020 getting out of this perpetual winter, uh, breaking through into a a thawing spring of uh, release back into the way that things used to be, but this is the hope that the gospel brings as well. The good news of Jesus breaking through in people's lives, melting cold hearts, transforming lives from this perpetual winter into the spring of life with Jesus. Because as bad things seem to be, as wintry and never Christmas as they seem, no matter where you are in life, Jesus is on the move to rescue and recreate the world through the hope of his gospel. And one day he will put this broken, busted world back together again. Because as 1 John reminds us, the reason the Son of God, Jesus Christ, appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And man, this is something we can truly be thankful for this season. I think of all seasons, given what we've experienced in 2020. Jesus Christ, God himself, showing up to destroy the work of the devil, to bring about the spring that we all long for from this perpetual winter of life. And again, of all the years celebrating the Christmas season, 2020 should make us appreciate and long for what Jesus offers. 
We've been there. We've done that. We know what life is like under the perpetual, seemingly perpetual weight of winter, right? This virus that has disrupted our lives for so long. But then there's spring, the other side, which we find so hopeful in the story of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with Aslan on the move, winter melting, spring is coming. That's what we have in Jesus. Forgiveness of sins, peace for today, and bright hope for tomorrow. A brand spanking new life through the resurrection. All right, that uh, wraps up week three in our virtual religion and fiction book club. If you have any more thoughts about this week's reading, would love to hear them down in the comments. If you noticed anything else that I missed or have any thoughts on themes that I didn't cover, please drop those in the comment section below. Again, thanks for joining this third week, and we'll come back again to continue exploring this enchanting, inspiring story, digging deeper into the themes of chapters 12 through 14. Until then, thanks so much for joining our adventure through Narnia, exploring the intersection of the sacred and story in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Next week, chapters 12, 13, and 14 fall perfectly in our book club schedule because they get at the heart of the meaning of Christmas. Feel free to leave a comment and be sure to subscribe to receive regular insights into the sacred and story. Enjoy your week and happy reading.